0: All right, I think everyone's generally on. So good to see so many of you welcome to another edition of the Cato club conversation series. I'm Harrison Moore, the Vice President for Development at the Cato Institute. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for your support. We're really excited to continue to have these conversations quarterly. Many of you gave us great feedback that you appreciated the opportunity to connect virtually, even as we returned to in-person events. It was so great to have so many of you in the building a few months ago for the Milton Friedman Prize and then the Cato Club Retreat. It was really energizing. It had been too long since everyone had been in the same room and we hope uh, many more of you will be able to come to our events as we move forward. We of course want this to be an interactive session, so please put any questions you have or comments into the chat box, or more interestingly, click the raise your hand function, which you can find at the participants button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. We'll move to Q&A for our conversation with Steve Hankey, and then after our keynote conversation with Barry Weiss, the former New York Times opinion uh, editor, and writer, who I'm sure many of you saw publicly resign from the paper um, over issues on intellectual curiosity and uh, resistance to um, combating tribalism at the paper. But first we wanna hear from our fearless leader, president and CEO, Peter Gettler to give an update on Cato as we head into the year end. So let me turn it over
1: to Peter. Fearless leader, thanks for that, Harrison. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone and thanks for joining us. I reiterate what, what Harrison said, it's great to see everybody online, both our supporters and my colleagues, but it was even better to see everyone back in uh, September and October when we had the Milton Friedman Prize dinner and the, the uh, Cato Club Retreat, our first retreat in two years. And uh, it was really special to be reunited with, uh, with old friends And also, um, you know, one of the things that was most gratifying uh, to me was uh, we got so much positive uh, feedback from all of you who attended. Um, I think that uh, you all share our sense of urgency at the state of policy in America and the strenuous challenges to liberty. But I think you also sense that we're working to raise Cato to a higher level of performance and impact continuously so that those of us who care so deeply about preserving liberty for future generations can best meet these challenges. At the retreat and since, people have told me they see we, that Cato is continuing to deliver a higher level of impact and we're having success reaching large new audiences, especially young people. Just this week, we reorganized our economic policy team. Uh, we raised Alex Narasta, Scott Linsicum, and Norbert Michel to positions of increased responsibility While Jeff Myron assumed the new position as our vice president for research, our policy staff has been completely restructured this year to ensure that we keep raising up the next generation of Cato's leaders and continue increasing the management and leadership capacity of the Institute. The first goal of making sure that we're uh, raising the next generation of leaders is to protect your long-term investment in Cato by ensuring that the Institute's gonna be in capable hands and certainly more capable hands than mine for many years to come. And uh, increasing the management and leadership capacity of the Institute will help ensure that we'll wring the utmost impact from the generous investments that you do make in us. These are responsibilities to you that we take very seriously. And we're particularly reminded of it at this time of year when so much of your critical support is received. We can't thank you enough for your generosity. Speaking of generosity, um, I received uh, a phone call. I was on a Zoom a week ago Friday. And when I got off, there was a call that I had to return said it was urgent. And so I knew it was probably gonna be bad news. And uh, one of Cato's most generous supporters who lives right here in the DC area, Phil Harvey, uh, passed away overnight a week ago, Thursday and Friday. And it's really had a big impact on all of us. It it, um, reminds us how important this community is and how close this community is. A lot of you may know Phil from past Cato Club retreats, but I know a lot of you don't know Phil because he was such an unassuming and humble man. Phil was an extraordinary entrepreneur who achieved great success in business. But you really would never know it. As I said, he lived here in the area in a very modest house. He drove a modest car and he uh, he was always dressed in pretty modest duds. Um, but in addition to his um, his success in business, Phil was also a successful social entrepreneur. during his graduate studies, and between college and graduate school, he spent a lot of time in the developing world. And Phil came to recognize that there was a lack of access to family planning in many areas of the development world. And he thought, what hope do people have to plan their escape from poverty if they're unable to plan when they have a child and how many children they have? And so with the profits of his business, Phil started a nonprofit enterprise that basically went into developing countries and increased access to family planning and contraception. And uh, he he was not just writing checks. It was a business enterprise where a nonprofit enterprise, but it had to become self-sustaining in all of these countries. And it's now a a nonprofit that's in dozens of developing countries, I think 40, self-sustaining in all of those. The whole enterprise generates something in excess of $150 million a year um, in revenue that is obviously plowed back into these activities. Uh, if that is all Phil accomplished, um, he would have had an extraordinary life, but he did so much more. He was so important to uh, to Cato as a supporter, as a sounding board. Uh, I'm really going to miss all the lunches I had with Phil here in my office where he was... Uh, he was, uh, he, was never, he was always generous with praise and suggestions, but also never shied away from, from criticism and telling me when we got it wrong. And that was really important because again, this whole idea of continuous improvement. Um, Phil wrote books. Um, one of them is here, The Human Cost of Welfare, How the System Hurts the People It's Supposed to Help. He wrote other books on policy, uh, the most recent of which was uh, about corporate welfare um, that inspired a documentary from the Free to Choose Network and our senior fellow, uh Joe Norberg. Uh, we didn't know some things about Phil. He actually wrote novels. He wrote poetry. Um, the uh, other thing that you should know about Mr. Harvey is The government came after him in the mid 80s. His business was raided by three dozen government agents and they basically proceeded to file lawsuits in all kinds of jurisdictions to shut his business down. And uh, many of Phil's competitors did shut their business down in the face of this government intimidation, but Phil decided to fight back. And uh, he basically spearheaded many very important court cases for civil liberties, for freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So as I like to say, Phil was uh, a generous supporter of Cato and so many other organizations, but he also was, uh, was down on the field um, playing the game, whether it's through writings on policy or fighting in the courts. And uh, not only do I feel we owe him such a debt of gratitude, uh, but he really exemplifies uh, this community and, uh, and what it means to me and my family and uh, the, the, uh, I'm, I'm just gonna miss him terribly. Uh, the personal connection we had was was really something special. And I'm uh, meeting with his wife, Harriet. Uh, we wish her the best, our sincere sympathy, but we're meeting uh, early Wednesday morning to begin planning for Phil's memorial service. But I, I really hope that you'll take the time to visit our homepage after this ends and see a tribute video that we put together for Phil. The last time, we had dinner together, I asked him if we could honor him at the Cato Club Retreat. And Phil said, uh, well, I'm not really sure why you would wanna honor me, but uh, but feel free. And uh, unfortunately, because COVID was still around, Ph- Phil decided not to attend the uh, the retreat. And we were, um, were heartbroken. That we, we decided to uh, save the tribute for next year. And we're heartbroken that Phil won't be there to receive that tribute, nor did he ever get a chance to see this video, but uh, my sister and brother-in-law came over for dinner Saturday night and I made them sit down in our living room and on the TV, watch this video of Phil, which you'll find on our homepage because he's an extraordinary man who was so humble and more people deserve to know uh, what he accomplished for uh, for us in uh, in expanding our liberty. And um, with uh, with that, I'll hand it over to, uh, to Harrison to take it away with the rest of the program. Thanks,
0: Peter. Yeah, I'm gonna miss uh, the occasional stinging email of constructive feedback from Phil in a random event he was watching. And uh, not, not for a crest transition, but you mentioned your year end support and uh, you asked me to make sure to remind you at the end of the year when it was time for you to get your check-in. So uh, Cynthia, if you're on too, don't, um, don't get mad at me for that, but just doing my job. (laughs) Harrison, you know I'm a deadline guy. I know you are. Sorry, so, oh, my lights just went off. Um, Let's keep the program moving. I wanna bring Steve Hankey into the conversation. Steve is our uh, senior fellow at Cato director of the Troubled Currencies Project and a um, expert on hyperinflation worldwide. I think uh, we around Cato joke that you can tell how authoritarian a government is uh, by the difference between the country's official inflation rate and Steve's calculated rate. So he's not always the most popular among the inner circles of those governments. Um, But Steve, uh, big topic right now, inflation obviously affecting um, everyone's life at the moment. why do you think everyone is wrong about inflation? That's, that's what you've titled your talk.
2: Well, everyone's wrong about it because no one's talking about the source of inflation. And the source is always and everywhere money. And the mismanagement of money is the key thing. And, and when I say mismanagement, that means excess production of money. Too much money going into the economy is cre- what creates inflation. It is not these ad hoc rationales that we're seeing in the press day after day, changing every day. It's this supply chain problem, semiconductors, ports, and Long Beach. Uh, you, 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 you name COVID now, and they, they change it and from day to day, and we never see the word money. John Greenwood and I actually went through the quarterly inflation reports in the United Kingdom, and you can't come up with roughly the same thing in the United States, we had to go all the way back. This is a Bank of England and their quarterly reports on inflation. We had to go all the way back to 2018 before we found the word money included in any report. And it's the same thing in the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, they talk about everything under the sun, but money. Now, this is this Milton Friedman 101, by the way. Monetary economics, the quantity theory of money. It's, uh, it tells the whole story, and, and we're not seeing it in the press. I looked over the weekend after we had that shocker, not a shocker to me, but a shocker to everybody else, 6.8% annual inflation, highest we've had in 39 years in the United States, and none of the journalists mentioned money. They were all talking about uh, all kinds of supply chain problems, COVID problems, this, that, and the other thing, but no one was talking about money. They don't mention money. And part of this, by the way, is due to the fact that there is an international com- campaign to bury Milton Friedman and his, all of his ideas. This is one reason it doesn't come in. The second reason is that all the young people trained today are fed Keynesian economics, and I'm talking about the sophisticated ones, all the Keynesian and post-Keynesian models do not include money. They are not, and money is not included in those models. So intellectually, it's just a desert. They, they, they don't know, and Wall Street doesn't know. All the young analysts on Wall Street, they're not looking at money. The, the market has this thing completely
3: wrong.
0: Thanks for that uh, introduction, Steve. I'm sure many of you have opinions on this and are experiencing um, inflation, you know, day to day, whether it's in your business or um, in your personal lives. So please feel free to join with the uh, participants button or chatting in the box. And I'd I'd like to invite you into the conversation. But Steve, if that's what's going on roughly uh, in the U.S., what about the rest of the world?
2: Well, it, let's start uh, with a, a little more detail on the US, uh, Harrison, uh, the money supply, since COVID started in March of 2020, the money supply has is, is exploded by roughly about 37%. And, and of that, about 77% of it is excess. In other words, you have to produce money to keep the economy going. And and so some of the money that that goes into the monetary bathtub gets drained out to to fuel real economic activity. And and then there's another drain coming out of the tub that accommodates increases in the demand for money. As we grow, as we get richer, We we demand more money to put in money market accounts and savings accounts and so forth. So that drains a little. So you're left with, in fact, about a quarter of the money that's been produced is actually being used to fuel real economic activity and accommodate the monetary demand increases that we have. And the rest is excess water left in the tub. So we've got this huge excess monetary aggregate in the tub and and right now that is about growing by about 27%, 28% since the start of COVID. Now, where does that go? That goes into what I call the overflow drain. That's the inflation drain. And John Greenwood and I wrote an article actually in July in the Wall Street Journal, in which we said by the end of this year inflation would be six percent, or maybe up to nine percent. That's all based on the quantity theory of money, and 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 this excess money that I'm talking about. So we have it; it's here. Our projection was was correct. It's it's this simple quantity theory of a, a money arithmetic, and it, and it is going to be not temporary. We're the religion is it's temporary, it's transitory, it's going away any day. No. The excess money that we have in the tub right now will be with us for another two or three years because there's about a two-year lag between the injection of money in the economy and the time it it takes to hit inflation and that overflow valve. So we're going to see inflation in the United States about six to 9% for 2022, 23, into 24, right now, even if, the, even if the Fed tapers as they continually talk about, even if they do that, we're going to have a lot of inflation in the economy. It's baked in the cake. And we know that from the quantity theory of money.
0: Thanks, Steve. Brian Belusik uh, chatted in the comment box. I recently became aware that the U.S. money supply has reached a size almost equal to U.S. GDP. This suggests a velocity of money of one. Any comments, Steve?
2: Well, yeah, the velocity of money, as it turns out, is is a very stable relationship. And and what the velocity does, it goes down in in a fairly stable way by about 1.7% 1.7% per year, but there are deviations in, from that trend. And we had, of course, a big deviation in the velocity trend when, when they shut the economy down on us and at the same time exploded the growth and the money supply. So the velocity went way down, but it, but it tends to revert always to the trend. And, and I think we will be reverting back to the trend and we'll hit it again in 2024. So all of the numbers that I'm giving you are assuming that yes, we know we've had this big deviation from the trend rate of growth. We know reversions to the trend always occur. And we know about how long it takes those reversions to occur. And, and it will be about 2024 when we hit back at that negative, slow decline of 1.7 percent in velocity. So what does this mean? That, that's a lot, in a way, a lot of technical mumbo jumbo. But it means that the velocity actually, to do what I just said, will actually increase. It won't be going down at a, at, at that trend rate of 1.7 percent. It'll actually be going up a little bit as we revert back to the trend rate. So this will just aggravate the inflation problem. so we 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 have a lot of excess money and and we're, we' velocity is reverting back to the trend and that kind of gooses it a little bit. the money supply it so it aggravates the whole thing. Now you did ask by the way of what, and yeah. in other places, the excess money. Just to, to briefly, the US is the worst offender. The biggest mismanagement in any central bank is the US Federal Reserve. And of course, we have Chairman Powell is it, been at the helm here. Well, President Biden is actually reappointing him. He's flunked and and, and he's getting an A instead of an F. Then we go to Israel. Israel is another big offender. They've got a a lot of excess money that's been produced. Then the United Kingdom, not quite as bad. And then you've got some mid-range countries uh, and zones. The Eurozone, Australia, Canada, won't be adding too much to their inflation surges. And then we've got New Zealand, Japan, Switzerland, and China in which they're practicing pretty good monetary policy, not, no big mistakes, and uh, you won't see very much change in their inflation rates. In fact, in China, China is actually the, the, the best one. The most orthodox, Friedmanesque, quantity theory of money country right now is China.
1: Thanks,
0: like Steve. Maybe we could drill down on one or two countries if, if we have time. Uh, Bob did ask, do you think this inflation was actually a surprise, quote unquote, to the Fed, or was it deliberately intended?
2: Well, I think it surprised them because none of their all their models are Keynesian models. In February, you had Jerome Powell testifying in a back and forth with Senator Kennedy from Louisiana. And Paul said in that back and forth that the money supply is irrelevant and doesn't matter. He literally, this is in testimony, he, he said the relationship between money and inflation is long gone and we have to unlearn that. We have to unlearn Milton Friedman and the quantity theory of money. He literally said this in testimony. So I, I think they were surprised. If, if they weren't looking at the money supply, how, how in the world they, they got sideswiped with the whole thing? It didn't surprise us by the way at all.
0: Yeah, I, I uh, wanted to ask sort of a related question. Um, what's the difference between today and 2008? I think many people felt the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet in Uh, 2008 was also gonna create inflation. Can you explain uh, what the difference is in this situation?
2: Yeah, well, now that's an interesting question. A a lot of people got this completely wrong, especially a lot of gold bugs got this wrong. What happened, we had, uh, of course, the the, the Great Recession started in 2008. And about that time, remember Washington, when, when we had the mortgage crisis, that blow up. Washington, of course, has to overreact to everything, they have to fix everything. And they, they fixed it by saying the culprit in that all of this were banks and bankers. So we have to regulate bankers more heavily. And that's the Dodd-Frank legis- legislation that came out. And that did put a noose around the neck of banks, and bank money money produced by banks, which is the biggest part of our money supply, by the way, about 90% of the money supply in the United States is not per, is produced by private banks, it's not produced by the Fed. The Fed only produces about 10% of the, of the broad money. So what happened? You put Dodd-Frank in, you put a noose around the, the, the banks, And the money supply produced by banks actually went down. We were starting a recession. We have Washington react with Dodd-Frank. We have a pro-cyclical component in the bank money. The recession begins and the money supply produced by banks starts going down. So then wisely, actually wisely, The Fed saw what was going on, and we had quantitative easing one, quantitative easing two, and quantitative easing three. That exploded the Fed's balance sheet, and a lot of people were just looking at that, and they said, oh, we're going to have hyperinflation. The sky's going to fall in. This is going to be a complete disaster. It wasn't, because the Fed is peanuts in the whole game. Most money is produced privately by private banks, and that was going down. So if you added it all together, the money supply was only growing at about four to 5% during all of the Great Recession. That's why we never came out of the Great Recession very rapidly. It was because Washington had in fact imposed very tight monetary policy by imposing the Dodd-Frank legislation on banks. So if we hadn't had quantitative easing, by the way, by the Fed, we would, we would have been in a Great Depression as a result of Dodd-Frank.
0: Comprehensive answer, Steve, thanks. I wanna take one more question here, Steve, if uh, you could be somewhat brief. I see um, Caleb and uh, Barry Weiss have entered the Zoom chat. So I wanna make sure to turn it over to them shortly. But James Anderson asks, do you think high inflation is inevitable given that the US has 30 trillion in debt and there isn't any way absent inflation, we can ever pay off that debt or service the interest on the debt as interest
2: rates rise? Well, right, right now, we are going to have inflation, as I said, through and in, in, into certainly 2022. Now, if you look at what the markets think, though, this is, a, this is the interesting thing. In other words, you look at the quantity theory of money, we, we know this thing is baked in the cake, you're going to have something over 6%. What's the market think? The market is bought into this transitory talk coming out of Washington and they have priced in for the next year an inflation rate of three and a half percent. That's what's in the bond market. So we, we already have 6.8% and the market is only pricing in three and a half. Then if we go out beyond the year, the, the thing falls down. The market is pricing in about two, two and a half percent. What this means If I'm right, and I will be, because it's just a quantitative theory of money arithmetic, there's gonna be a bloodbath in the the bond market. The the market will will eventually get it right and reprice the bonds. You're you're gonna have a collapse in the bond market, which will be very disruptive and spill over into the equity markets also.
0: Well, I was certainly taking notes. Um, I trust everyone else was. If anyone wants to get in touch with Steve, his contact information is on our website or just send me a note. Be happy to put you in touch. Steve, thanks so much. Uh, Appreciate all the work you're doing and taking time out tonight. Let me go ahead and turn it over to my colleague and friend, our host of the Cato Daily Podcast, Caleb Brown, who will take us to the next portion of the program.
3: Caleb. Caleb. Thank you, Harrison. I appreciate that. Uh, I uh, th- First of all, hello, everyone, uh, and uh, thank you for joining us here. Uh, as Harrison mentioned, I'm Caleb Brown, a host of the Cato Daily Podcast. Uh, right now, I am speaking, uh, and I'm uh, pleased, very pleased to speak with uh, Barry Weiss, uh, Barry Weiss, rather, uh, a journalist whose uh, departure from the New York Times as a, a, an op-ed staff editor and writer there. Uh, which you may have read her letter, which was uh, stunning in a way. And Barry, before we uh, popped into this room here, you were saying that people love hearing about (laughs) uh, the New York Times, the internal workings of the New York Times. But we should also mention you worked for the Wall Street Journal as well. So uh, a a different kind of uh, perspective that you can get, especially in uh, editorializing between those two. Uh, newspapers, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you are also now a columnist at De Velt.
4: Yes, I am. No one ever mentions that. but Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 just, I, I just
3: know, I just know how to pronounce De Velt. So it that's... took
4: me, it took me a year. I was like, <laughs> Die Welt? No. Um. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here with all of you. And yeah, as you mentioned, I, I am someone who is, um, either a masochist or very used to being politically homeless. I, I went from being. The leftmost leaning squish, as they called me at the Wall Street Journal, to somewhere to the right of Attila the hunt at the New York Times,
3: and, and now if, are you now I live being... in the wild.
4: Now I live in the <laughs> wild west of um, the Substack and podcast well, universe. Well,
3: well, I hope in a room full of hardcore libertarians that you can <laughs> reacclimate yourself to being a squish, um, uh, because uh, libertarians, as you know, are fairly strident in uh, a lot of uh, our views. It's true,
4: but I have to say, I've always found myself at home with libertarians um, and they'd they, they like to claim me as their own. Um, certainly the Reason Magazine folks. Um, and and I, I definitely think I have some libertarian tendencies that maybe are coming into fuller blossom, given the totally insane times that we live in, which I'm sure we'll, we'll I, get
3: to. So I want to uh, ask, uh, first of all, how do you evaluate? And th- this is, what's the difference if you can draw it out? The difference between the uh, hashing out of ideas and discussing topics and disca- deciding what is going to go on a highly read editorial page. What's the difference between the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times?
4: It's a great question. One of the things that so Paul Jago, as I'm sure many of you know, is the editorial page editor at at the journal and has been since Robert Bartley died. Um, And the way that he thought about the op-ed page at the journal was, we don't need to be exactly in the middle. We don't need a totally perfect proportion of liberal to conservative, I'm speaking broadly now, op-eds. Why? He would say because the vast majority of papers in in this country are liberal or progressive or even more to the left than that. It's our job to sort of be a home for the ideas that would be homeless were it not for us. And so the ethos there was very much a kind of 80-20 rule. Uh, 80% of the pieces that we run ran were, you know, exemplifying sort of the, the Wall Street Journal ethos, which is free people and free markets. Um, both ideas that have sort of fallen out of favor with people on the left and the right in this moment, as I'm sure you all know. Um, But it also meant that when we published people from a left-leaning or progressive perspective that we were trying to get sort of the strongest argument. Uh, Steel Manning wasn't a phrase that was really used at the time, but we really tried to do that. And the New York Times um, was different. Uh, The New York Times, you know, I don't know if it was as self-aware because in a way when you're the godzilla in the room you don't have to be as self-aware of who you are um i also think and and this was just a shift in time and and the power of social media twitter had not yet become the thing that it was in the years that i was at the journal i would say post trump especially And that was when I went to the Times in the sort of post-Trump reflective era, we somehow we missed this, this was their view, somehow we missed this unbelievable phenomenon. You know, if you looked at the needle, the infamous needle that night of the election, everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Well, how did they miss the biggest phenomenon in this country? Um, And so I was an intellectual diversity hire, along with Brett Stevens. We came in and, and my explicit job was to bring in pieces that would offer a perspective that you wouldn't encounter naturally in the wilds of, you know, the Upper West Side or Berkeley, um, which is hilarious. Just, you know, given the actual ideological spectrum of this country, uh, the fact that I was the intellectual diversity hire tells you a lot about the New York Times. So, what I will say is, and I think that this is really relevant when we're thinking about new media and the problem that everyone experiences when it comes to having a instant instantaneous feedback on social media, and the question also of the way the market has changed, the business model, right? It's gone from the, we need to worry about pissing the advertiser to we need to worry about pissing off the subscriber. And you know that sense is only amplified when your readers or the portion of your readers who are extremely loud are screaming at you on social media. And so the way that that worked at the New York Times is You know, my dad has been a conservative. He went to Kenyan as a Maoist, left as a Straussian. And he used to believe that the New York Times, that there was some sort of not a conspiracy, but that it was really intentional. Right. And it's it's much more inchoate than that. It's much more that, you know, it's it's the it's the pressure that you get at a cocktail party. It's the sense that do I really want to die on this hill if publishing this piece or writing this column means that my colleagues are going to hate me or they're going to think I smell bad and not want to sit next to me in the cafeteria. And also, by the way, it's going to be hell on social media for me for the next week. Ah, eh, I'll get the 4,000th op-ed saying that Donald Trump is a moral monster. And you see, you saw that incentive at work. And I saw it from the beginning, but it only intensified oddly as the administration wore on. The
3: uh, you, you mentioned <laughs> the, the, op-ed and I'm reminded of Jack Donaghy from 30 Rock
4: uh,
3: saying, no, you, you, when you, when you're talking to an actor, you have to coddle them. You have to tell them everything is great and they're right and they're wonderful. And he says, I will treat them like the New York Times treats their readers. Um, (laughs) Ah,
4: That's amazing. Somehow I, I mean, I, I was a religious 30 Rock watcher, but I don't know how I missed that. That's amazing.
3: uh, Yeah. So, um, you said you called yourself an intellectual diversity hire. I uh you know, we hear the term diversity hire and it's never meant as a as a good thing, but an intellectual diversity hire sounds like a pretty good thing to me for a group of New Yorkers to say, look, there are probably perspectives that were missing. Uh I would count intellectual diversity hires as a point in the New York Times favor. Of course, we all know what happened with your tenure at the times, but uh <laughs> I mean, it, do you do you think that that value is uh, falling away at uh, this news source?
4: Oh, you, you just read my resignation letter. But I understand. I I, under, I, understand. I, I, I don't think yeah.
3: everybody here has, I don't think everyone here has read your resignation letter. I'll commend that to you. I mean, you referred to the uh, editorial pages of the New York Times as a performative space.
4: Well, I think it's that the New York Times claims to be the paper of record. It it claims to be holding up a mirror to the world as it actually is. And what I found is that it was in fact telling its readers, the vast majority of whom identify politically in a certain direction, we all know what direction that is, the world as they wished it to be. And in doing so, they were doing an unbelievable disservice to those readers and yet, you know, for the very same reasons that people watch Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity or pick your Fox talking head every night. um, It's the very same incentives that drive New York Times readers to read the paper. And this is this is the problem of audience capture that is not unique to the Times. It's not unique to Fox. It's something you experience, even if you're running a little picture of a newsletter, right? Because you know what you can I'll give you an example. I could run a piece every single week about critical race theory run amok in private schools and elite colleges. And I would see the money in my bank account go like that because it's catnip for a certain kind of reader, a certain kind of reader that's drawn to me. And the challenge of what a good editor is supposed to do and the things that my very best mentors and bosses taught me to do is your job is not just to give your audience donuts. Your job is also to give your audience the kind of protein that is required if you want to be an intelligent person that is informed about the world. And that might mean, yeah, sometimes you, I'll give you another example. You know, I ran a symposium recently on the question of vaccine mandates, and I had everyone from Adrian Vermeule on the right, Harvard constitutional law professor, Catholic, arguing pro mandates from the perspective of the common good. Now, right. I also had Glenn Greenwald, civil libertarian. We disagree a ton about Israel and other topics arguing against them. And I got a lot of unsubscribes the day that I ran that. But the question is, you know, do you have the discipline as an editor or as a publisher of the New York Times or as the CEO of a cable news company to give your audience the things that you think they should know? And I think that that's the challenge right now is that all of the financial incentives are pushing in the opposite direction.
3: Yeah. So um, I have looked on Reddit. I run vanity searches for the Cato Daily podcast on various <laughs> platforms, okay. and I have I have seen on occasion uh, the Cato Daily podcast pop up on a list on lists of how can I reduce my cognitive biases? Mm. What should I be reading or listening to re- to reduce my cognitive biases? And I, I feel like there's a huge appetite
4: there is. from
3: a from a large swath of the United States of America that, boy, I don't want to be wrong about things.
4: And I don't I- want to hate people so much. <laughs> right. And, and, and these places are making, these things that right. I'm reading and watching are making me hate people more. Not a good thing. Uh, Caleb, you know, there's a lot to be pessimistic about as I'm thinking a lot back on 2021 and a year that sort of blurred into 2020. And obviously there's a lot that's broken. One of the things that I think is incredibly heartening is how how intense that appetite is. And the problem right now for the reader or the listener or the watcher, you know, we all get our media in so many ways right now is that, you know, if you want to expand your mind, if you want to sort of fight against cognitive bias, if you want to challenge yourself, it's a lot of work. You need to go and subscribe to 20 different podcasts and 30 different newsletters, and maybe you need to make a Twitter account, and maybe you need to go on some Reddit board. Come on. If you're an accountant in Pittsburgh or you know a lawyer in Cincinnati, you don't have the time to do that. And I think one of the challenges right now is, can there be an institution that rises up that sort of bundles together a lot of these heterodox and independent voices. Right now for creators, journalists, whatever you want to call us like me, it's a boon. You know, people are willing to pay five dollars a month to me and Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and Andrew Sullivan. The question is, at a certain point, there's going to be a rebundling. But what I take an incredible amount of heart from is when I talk to my readers and I see who they are, they are in every state, they are in 30 different countries, They run the gamut from homeschooling Christian parents in flyover states to disillusioned liberals living on, you know, living in Brooklyn. It's just a huge range of people. And the kind of conversations that I'm having with them are unbelievably sophisticated and also civil. And the last months that I was at the New York Times, I felt incredibly despondent, honestly, about the media landscape, about the possibilities for change. And I think the more that I've sort of shifted my gaze from trying to shore up and reform institutions that to my mind are obviously decayed beyond repair, the more optimistic and excited that I've become. And that has to do with both building new media, but also with things like trying to throw my weight behind a new university that is going to be built in Austin and any number of other initiatives. To me, like the entire focus of the coming decades is building anew and building new things.
3: Uh, you wrote uh, recently in Commentary Magazine, and I, I want to say, I want to commend your writing style because it is uh, it is like you are stacking rocks, like you are building <laughs> a wall and, this, and, and you're Thank leaving you. no doubt as to what it is that you think about things. Um, you write in Commentary in an article entitled, We Got Here Because of Cowardice, We Get Out uh with courage Uh, you write racism has been redefined it is no longer about discrimination based on the color of someone's skin racism is any system that allows for disparate outcomes between racial groups if disparity is present as the high priest of this ideology ibram x kendi has explained racism is present according to this totalizing new view we are all either racist or anti-racist to be a good person and not a bad person, you must be an anti-racist. There is no neutrality. There is no such thing as not racist. Um, and I'll commend that piece to to people as well. So let me get your definition of woke <laughs> and wokeism. Like, what is? I hear it used as a pejorative by a lot of conservatives. And I'm pretty clear that that those people do not understand uh, what that term means other than to describe everything that's to the left of them.
4: <laughs> I have heard a lot of people, um, let's say, in the boomer generation and older, on the center right to the right who, yeah, are describing it, to de- who are using it to describe just like anything they don't like. Um, I should say there's an interesting sort of uh, uh, etymology of the word. It starts out in um, Black culture. It's, it's you can find it in, um, in this incredible song. I mean, the idea of it originally was, you know, stay woke to power, stay woke to systems of oppression. And I frankly think it's like, it's a beautiful phrase. And I like the idea of waking up to reality um, and waking up to to things that have been hidden or things that have been lied about. So that part of it really attracts me. Without getting too in the weeds, Caleb, I think the useful way of understanding it is that someone that's a conservative and someone that's a liberal, they fundamentally agree on a certain set of tenets that let's say until quite recently seemed to be as natural in the American political landscape as oxygen, right? The idea that whether you're a conservative or a liberal, the idea that you shouldn't be constrained to the lane of your birth, the idea that we judge people based on their deeds and not based on the sins or the virtues, frankly, of their parentage. The idea that, you know, while it may be difficult to inhabit the experience of another person, the point of empathy, right, is to try. The idea that politics is important, but there are certain things that are more important and that fall outside of the realm of politics and shouldn't be put ever to a political litmus test. Art, love, music, relationships, all of it. And I think what woke is, is sort of trying to undermine, if I can say this, like the bedrock of liberalism. It's trying to say that you should be constrained to the lane of your birth that based on the amount of melanin in your skin or your gender or your class or any number of other things that are outside of your control when you come out of your mother, that you're sort of determined, your life is determined, your station is determined based on those things. And you're either slotted, like I write, into like a chicken coop, you're either oppressed or oppressor. And it also suggests that, and I think this is the core difference between liberalism, right, or even progressivism and wokeism, is the notion that, you know, in the context of America, that encoded in the founding documents of this country, even if and even yes, that the founders were moral hypocrites because they owned slaves, that encoded in them was a kind of promissory note, as King called it, And that the solution to all of America's maladies, and yes, there were many, was to expand the tent of who was included in those promises. And what wokeness does is comes along and says, the constitution, the bill of rights, enlightenment values, that because they were created by misogynistic, bigoted, racist, transphobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, dead white men, that they are somehow fundamentally tainted and that the system itself needs to be torn down. And that is the crucial distinction. Can the system be rectified? Can it be changed? Is debate possible? Or is it all sort of rotten from the core and we need to tear down and start again? And that is the fundamental thing that I'm not sure a lot of people, especially in an older generation, quite grasp about frankly, the nihilism in the end of this ideology?
3: Uh, I have several people on Twitter that I hate follow, (laughs) Um, which is to say, I don't like what they have to say, but oh boy, I'm just itching to, you know, oh, I'm just going to dunk on you when you say those dumb things. And uh, this week, I'm speaking to you from Shelbyville, Kentucky, which is just outside of Louisville. uh, I went to high school in Murray, Kentucky, which is about 15 minutes from Mayfield, Kentucky, which is... Uh, was essentially destroyed. A big chunk of it was destroyed this weekend. And watching the reaction uh, and and to our donors, I should mention that uh, our executive vice president, David Bowes, went to high school and grew up in Mayfield, Kentucky. Um, uh, And watching the reactions to this on Twitter, you see people essentially put this tornado, a tornado, a natural disaster through the lens of politics and say, you know, Kentucky, if you just chose better senators.
4: Oh my God, I haven't seen that. And, that but, so the rea-
3: but the reaction from left, the left in Kentucky was, why don't you just not do that? Mm. Like, that's this is not the time for that. So that, and I was extremely heartened by that. So that's mm. sort of, to me, that's the liberalism, which is, I disagree with you on all manner of public policy questions, but on this, we are... Uh, united that this is not an, a, you know, with a, more than, a, with a, you know, as many as 100 people dead, that's probably not the best lens at it's, this moment to look through.
4: I think there are two things going on. One is the totalizing nature of this ideology, which, which forces everything through a political lens. And the other is just like the nationalizing of every local conversation in a way that's unbelievably unhealthy. Which is to say, you know, a local tornado that's a tragedy in Kentucky somehow becomes a conversation about climate change or the Green New Deal or I I haven't seen your hate follows, but I can imagine the conversation.
3: <laughs> well, so uh, l- let's talk a little bit. We've had I don't know if you heard we had a we've had a global pandemic um, recently, really? and yeah. <laughs> uh, it has radically altered education in America. Um, my wife and I have just about sealed the deal on never sending our kids to uh, our, our local public schools uh we're not 100 percent on that but we're darn close and uh by virtue of parents being in much closer proximity to the education the educating of their youngsters they've seen a lot of things that they really don't like uh they've also so- seen
4: you know the total and utter corruption of the teachers unions in a way that you know that as we were talking about before caleb that's right i don't think i don't think i don't think anything has been more uh effective to promote the movement for school choice that i know you guys at cato and me personally feel so strongly about than the past two years and we were having a little debate before about whether or not the the sort of spark was the pandemic and the some of the nonsensical rules of the pandemic and the fact right. that in Chicago and freezing Northeastern cities right now, children are being asked to sit silently on their tushes outside and eat lunch and not speak to each other. Or in other schools where they still have Plexiglass up and kids have to watch tablets. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And how teachers unions are using you know COVID safety measures to argue for a three-day weekend Fridays off because of COVID. I mean, the corruption of it is staggering. And I probably have edited, I've edited hundreds of op-eds in my career pushing for school choice. Nothing, nothing has made the case more effectively than what we've witnessed over the past two years. And I, I think it, it's, it hap- it's on two levels. One is the stranglehold that the teachers union has and their obvious corruption. And the second has to do with the actual content that all of a sudden parents were able to look over their kid's shoulder on Zoom and saying, wait, what, that's what you're learning about all day? And I do think that, you know, Loudoun County is an obvious um, kind of, like Rosetta Stone for this, but you see it happening everywhere. And just anecdotally, the kind of people I know, we ran a big story about it in, in my newsletter, but it used to be that, right, who were the kids that I knew that were homeschooled? They were religious Christians, or they were granola hippie people that had chickens in their backyard?
3: Uh, I, we're both, so.
4: Love it, okay, love <laughs> it. But who's joining you, right? Who's joining the homeschooling ranks? It's upper middle class, rich Persian Jews in LA talking right. about starting a school. It's liberals who live in Manhattan or are moving to Florida because they, I mean, it's it's everybody all of a sudden. And to me, you know, going back to what we were saying before about, like, possibility in this moment, this is another one of those unbelievable bright spots that, frankly, libertarians should be especially cheerful about right now. The the revolution that's happening in this in this area is unbelievable.
3: Yeah. So um, uh, we've seen. I want to say 18 or 21, depending on how you count states that have either created new school choice programs or have expanded uh, previous school choice programs. Kentucky is one of them that for the first time has adopted school choice, uh, I'm happy to say. Um, and uh, yet, to me, and tell me tell me why I'm wrong, okay. if you do think that I'm wrong, Yeah. Um, I think the focus on the man, the mandated masking. While I don't, I don't particularly like it. I don't know that science supports it. The uh, vaccine mandates for young people to go to school, to go to attend public school, um, and so-called critical race theory. I, I, while I think those are perfectly good fights to have, I feel like if you put all that energy into school choice, those problems work themselves out, out anyway. So, uh. I guess give me the give me what you view as as the the worst case scenario for critical race theory in
4: schools. The worst case scenario. I mean think about it from this perspective. You're a 9-year-old white child and you're in class and your teacher who you admire and trust is telling you that your race is the most important thing about you. And in fact, your race is the thing that gives you this implicit power over other people in your class, over your friends who you love, and your race is the thing that ultimately is going to divide you from them forever. Does that sound like a liberal teacher in America or does that sound like a KKK talking point? <laughs> I, I, I find that the idea of reifying race, of putting race at the center of people's minds, from in, in a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-multi-whatever democracy, that is a terrible idea. And the kind of stories that I hear from, I'm not even talking about college, that's ship has sailed in a certain way, but high school and middle school kids and increasingly grade school kids, the kind of things, the way they are being taught to think about themselves in relationship to others and putting race at the front of people's minds we only need to look at history to see where that kind of tribalism goes. So I think a lot's at stake. Now I'll also acknowledge that I think that there is somewhat of a panic about CRT. I think that the notion of what it is, sort of like the notion of what woke is, um, is elastic, especially on the right, because it's a very, very effective rallying cry. Um, But I've done a tremendous amount of reporting over the past few years on this subject. And it really is, you know, when it is present, incredibly toxic, um, not just for people's understanding of what America is, not just for people's understanding of what the West is, but for, for a child, for their fundamental understanding of who they are in relationship to their peers. Um, so I, I think it is a very worthwhile subject. And I'll say even from a strategic perspective, okay. um, you know, it it is, for, for anyone who wants to make the case for school choice, I think it's been a very effective, um, I don't know. Fuel. You know, fuel, exactly. And I think you just need to look at the work of Chris Rufo, and you know, agree with him or don't agree with him. What he's been able to do over the past year has been unbelievably effective.
3: Uh so let me let's do the flip side of that and and I want to sure. tell our our wonderful uh, Cato Institute supporters if you have questions for uh, Barry Weiss just plug them into the chat and we'll try to get to as many of those as we can in the next 20 minutes or so. Um America does have a you know uh, Ned Flanders says uh I want to get back to an America that only exists in the minds of us Republicans. <laughs> um which is to say hearkening back to some previous era where everything was fine Mm -hmm. and uh that net has never existed and you know as as people like to to point out slavery is the original sin of uh the american republic so is there a way in your view for public schools and maybe to a lesser extent private schools to Fairly present that information in a way that will satisfy the relevant stakeholders.
4: It's a tricky question with the the word stakeholders is always a tricky question. Well, it's, then let's just course, say, let's yeah. just say parents. Yeah, although uh, Randy, Weingarten, Randy Weingarten would say that parents should have no say at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll say two things. The first thing I'll say is that um, everyone's nostalgic. It's just a question of what year you wanna go back to. And a lot of people wanna wind back, a lot of people I know wanna wind back the clock to like 1996 or 1984 or you know, ask any, so I I don't think that that's unique. I think it's just a question of what year you wanna pick in American history. As for the question of how can we teach this, the, the ugliness of our past in a way that satisfies people. Look, I think it's a question of Think about like Howard's in People's History of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to give that book to a first grader? No. Would you maybe give that book to an 11th or 12th grader and to say to them, read this with a grain of salt. You're going to be encountering a lot of this on campus. It's a perspective to consider. And I think it's about like rooting. You don't start in kindergarten, first grade, second grade with the idea that America is You know, a country that was founded as Nicole Hannah Jones would have us believe in order to uphold slavery. Right. And the problem is, is that a lot of young kids are being taught that before they even know the basics about who we are and what makes this country exceptional. And I think it's a question of like any subject. Right. You you start from a place of basic facts and frankly, in the case of teaching about America, gratitude for what makes this country truly unique. And then later on, sort of layering in the complications. Do I know, listen, Caleb, I don't have children yet. You know much better than me, um, I'm sure, uh, the answer to this question. But but I would say that we're, we're sort of like having it backwards to the point that sometimes I'm meeting kids in ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, who have really been through sort of the most elite schools, which tend to be the most woke. And they can't offer sort of like the most basic articulation of what america is about and why someone might think that it is special uh, and deserves to be defended
3: uh let me uh, we're going to go to some questions here um susanna and david Lindbergh, i'm going to ask the question from them do you think ordinary school kids quote drink the crt kool-aid in the ussr people knew they were being lied to even when they didn't know the truth will crt Mm. create a generation of anti-leftists
4: I think we're, that's a great question. I think we're already starting to see the backlash to it. Um, And it's very ugly. I have to tell you, the backlash is not, the backlash looks like a kind of version of white identity politics um, in a way that I find really disturbing. Um, And one of the reasons I think it's been, one of the reasons when people ask me like, why are you so obsessed with this topic? Well, one of the reasons I'm obsessed by this topic is that in various corners of the internet that I traffic in and various people that I talk to, I've been seeing for a while now what the backlash to it might look like. And I don't wanna live in a world as a Jewish gay woman where that becomes the other prevailing kind of cultural movement. Um, and so, yeah, mm. I, I, I'm i quite quite worried about that. As for the question of, do they know they're being lied to? Well. I think it's a question of what kind of counter-programming they're getting in the rest of their life, right? What kind of counter-programming are they getting in their homes? One of the things that I find interesting, and this is separate from the backlash I was just talking about, is a lot of boys, um, especially if they are um, not Black, but even sometimes when they are, are being super drawn into and love people like ben shapiro or jordan peterson or you know we can name all of them because they feel like oh wait this is the first time i'm hearing something different this is the first time i'm hearing that i'm not bad so i don't know maybe on the optimistic side of it maybe it's just going to mint a bunch of sort of free market conservatives and republicans but i think it's going to go um way further than that
3: well i think i think minting a bunch of free market uh conservatives or libertarians would be great. I guess my concern is, uh, as you know, the grift is on out there. And uh, there are a lot of people who would like to take advantage of uh, disaffection that young people have yes, and turn it into something else, turn it into some other attitude. That's not only are you not worse than everyone else, you're, you're better. better. That's what I'm worried about.
4: I agree with you, and I, I. this is why I think that, you know, as unsexy as making the case for liberalism broadly defined is, this is why I think it's so important. This is why I think it is so important to fight against ideologies that are fundamentally dehumanizing um, and and also like the casual use of language that I see often from professional journalists and thinkers and public intellectuals that is deeply, deeply dehumanizing of people that disagree with them. Um, yeah, I, I I share your concern. And I think one of the ways that like one of the solutions to it, right, is just modeling good behavior, modeling what it's like. And I don't think that this can be underestimated to be a mensch in public, to act online. Right. This is the number one rule at my little company right. I'm building. Act online the way you act in real life. Right. Period. And I, I really think that, and yeah, the, these, these are very, very powerful platforms that are transforming, I think, cultural norms, social mores, transforming, frankly, like what it means to be a human being. And I think that it's very important, especially right now, to really root down in what our values are and what our virtues are and, and how we want to teach younger people watching us to behave
3: yeah no i uh, i i could i couldn't agree more well let's go to some some other questions here uh philip goldstein asks aren't black kids hurt even more by telling them that they have no chance to succeed because of systemic racism
4: yes um telling children in eighth grade as they are in san francisco that algebra is white supremacy and that if you can't do well in math that it's probably racism um, seems almost so perfect of a self-sabotage that you would think that China would be involved, but no, we're just doing it to ourselves. Um, yeah, I think that it's incredibly harmful. And I'll tell you, as you know, I was I was telling Caleb before we started, my sister is a public school teacher in Pittsburgh. She became a public school teacher, husband's a firefighter because, frankly, of systemic racism. She, she teaches in a school that's majority-minority, almost all of the kids are on subsidized lunches they come from homes over the past year with a pandemic where sometimes there would be three four kids sharing one iphone or tablet she marched for black lives matter that's my sister and yet what is the thing that has sort of shifted her thinking is when she was being told to read white fragility when she was being told to inculcate in her students not a sense that they were capable of becoming anything and become and, and succeeding beyond their wildest imaginations but when she was being essentially taught to teach them no, that all is sort of lost and that america is so sort of hopelessly racist and it's so encoded in every part of who we are as a country that it's, it's beyond redemption. And that was the thing, along with, frankly, lots of people I know, that has really shifted their thinking. People who genuinely work in the trenches with young people of color, especially poor, do not want to teach them that they are crippled because of the circumstance of their birth. They want to empower them. And again, like, looking for 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 opportunities of hope as i am trying to do as i'm looking toward the new year in a way that's another one of them a lot of the people that are at the front lines of actual social justice work not social justice via tweet um i think are are seeing the corruption of that ideology and the way that it actually is hurting the people that it's claiming to help
3: uh question from julie smith um and this is uh Kind of a frightening thought, and I'm not sure I want you to go into this, but I'm going to ask oh, the God. question anyway. Okay. What does victory look like if uh, the left, broadly speaking, wins on the wokeism CRT fight? What what does that look like, and what is the end game?
4: Well, I think we're already we already can see enough of the shape of what that would look like, and it looks like people scared to share their commonsensical beliefs. Um, I'm not talking about taboos. I'm talking about acknowledging reality. Do we wanna live in a world in which um, it is verboten to suggest that there is a difference between men and women and someone who went through male puberty and is now swimming at the University of Pennsylvania and beating her rivals by 38 seconds. Are we allowed to talk about that? Because right now at the University of Pennsylvania, Leah Thomas's teammates have been told by the university and by their coach that they're not allowed to talk about it. They've been giving blind quotes to out, to publications like OutKick, talking about how unfair they think it is. You know, that's the world we already live in. So I want you to imagine that everywhere, right? Not just in elite spaces, not just in magazines and, you know, uh, Hollywood studios and, and university campuses and elite high schools, right. but increasingly you right. We're everywhere. talking about the
3: decision to report a crime uh, per- being run through some sort of political lens.
4: Correct, correct. And, and frankly, one of the things that I think a lot of people comfort themselves with right now is, okay, yes, a lot of those sectors are lost, but we still have the law. Well, we're working on a piece for my newsletter right now about the sort of inroads that wokeness has made in the law so what does that look like? What is you know, jury nullification based on race? I mean, we could go on and on and on. I don't think it's hard to imagine it. And it is not a country that I think anyone who values freedom, regardless of your politics, wants to live in.
3: Let me uh, ask this question. Maybe it's a little, uh, maybe we can close on a happier note here. Ah, uh, this is from Peter. I'm happy, but
4: yes. <laughs> I, no, no, no,
3: no, no. I'm not. I, you're you're giving us the take as as best you see it. Uh, this is from Peter Klein. Peter asks Barry, "Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel over the next, say, ten to thirty years, where U.S. culture appears to be headed, given the demographics of the young, the heavy-handed influence of college faculties, or is the light an oncoming train? Uh, will rational thinking prevail over time?"
4: That's a beautifully worded question. Um, as I hope I've been indicating to you guys, I do feel optimistic and I feel optimistic, frankly, because of this common sense and goodness of a lot of Americans. I mean, that as someone asked me the other night, like what makes you optimistic about America? Being in America, going and talking to normal people, getting out of, you know, blue bubbles and talking to people who disagree with me. I mean, it's like, there's so much good Um, And, you know, as for the question of light at the end of the tunnel, and look, I think that there's, we're living through a time of unbelievable transformation and the incredible technology that's enabling me to sit in my kitchen in Los Angeles and talk to you right now is both unbelievably powerful and incredible and also very, very scary. Um, It's both, right? And if you look back at the history of other technological change, and I think this outstrips them on both scale and speed in a way that is sort of unimaginable to our ancestors, a lot of bad things happen because of technological innovation. And I think when we sort of look back at all of this, it won't be Trump, it won't be CRT, it'll be the internet and the way that the internet transformed what it means to be human. And that's where a lot of my thinking is and the question of how do we stay human um, in the age of the machines? my hope comes from people that are trying to do that it comes from people who are trying to sort of bring back the front porch and bring back the homeschool. it also comes frankly from i was joking the other day like now is the era it's the new era of the states is upon us you know i can't think of a time in my life where the sort of laboratory of the states the grand experiment that our founders imagined was more alive I know more people moving to different places in the past two years than I have in my entire lifetime until now. That's another point of incredible, incredible optimism. Um, and you know, just because I'm speaking to Cato, I would say, guys, a lot of your ideas turned out to be right. And what's funny is however many sort of uh, white papers and op-eds and conferences you did, that didn't make the case, reality reality and experience made the case for people so I, I I just think there there's a lot to be hopeful for but again hope comes from looking to the future and thinking about the way that we want to build it in a way that is generative and joyful and humane both for us and for for our kids
3: before I turn this over to Mr. Harrison Moore, Barry, I want to ask you, can I get you on the Cato Daily Podcast to make sure. a triumphant and positive pitch for of course. America's future? Sure. Uh, I, I, hope, I hope I
4: delivered. Sure. You,
3: you're, you just repeat everything you just said. Don't change a word. Okay. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, thank
4: you and very much.
1: And Caleb, I, Caleb yes, I'd like sir. to note that half of our ideas have been proven right and the other half haven't been tried yet.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we not And guys, we haven't even talked about blockchain and Bitcoin, which That's is right. like the ultimate libertarian idea.
3: Yes, yes. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate Thank you so having much. you here and uh, presenting uh, your thoughts to our most ardent supporters uh, here at the Cato Institute. So, uh, Harrison, I think I'm going to yeah. turn it back over to you.
0: Well, that was a fantastic
3: discussion. Thanks so much, Barry.
0: Thanks, Caleb. Caleb, way to get that ask in on, on the podcast um, you're always <laughs> for that. That was fantastic. Look forward to that coming out. We're going to let everyone go. I have to make sure to mention upcoming events, February 2nd. For those of you in Naples, we're having our city seminar there, April 12th in New York city. Please write that down. And the next Cato club retreat will be in, uh, South Carolina, September 29th to October 2nd. Can't wait to see so many more of you in the new year. Please send any feedback you have our way on tonight or at any time. Always love to hear from you. And until then, thanks again for your support. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and happy new year. Talk to y'all soon.